All right, good morning, everybody, again, if, I, if you're come in since the last time I said that. Um, I want to introduce Tyler. Tyler is uh, Tyler's a good friend, first of all. Uh, I've known Tyler ever since he was a teenager, and uh, uh, an amazing guy. The moment I met him, I, I told him this, like, literally the first night that we, we talked, and I met, uh, I said, man, there's a destiny on your life. There's just no doubt about it. And he, he jokes about it all the time. He's like, I, I couldn't see it. Well, <laughs> that's part of what leaders do is to call out those things. And so, again, um, our passion as we build into other leaders, and we're doing that today with releasing new leaders in BCF, is to, to let them launch from our shoulders. And so my, my heart for Tyler has always been, man, I'd love for you to go way, way farther than, than I ever have in ministry. And so we, we love him. We're so thankful for his gift and his calling and his ministry. And he, he's an elder in his, in his church up in, in Atlanta at Northlands been part of their eldership team for a long time now. He preaches on a regular basis. He's an incredible communicator. He's got a great sense of humor. <laughs> so you love, you're going to love what he's going to do. Great. <laughs> he's going to share a little Come bit on. this morning. And then, right, like I said, at the end, we're going to bring up elders, and we're going to, uh, elders and deacons are going to pray over those guys. But I just want to give him uh, all the time. And so if you will, let's pray for him and just invite the Holy Spirit through his heart and through his ministry. So Jesus, we just say thank you for Tyler this morning. Thank you for his passion for the kingdom. Lord, thank you most of all for his love for your bride, um, that he's willing to pour out and sacrifice his heart and his life and pour out his life as a drink offering, Lord, um, just to serve um, your bride and to serve you, his king. So, Lord, we just pray your blessing on him, Lord. Open up his heart this morning that he would bring what you put in his heart with tremendous passion and a heart, a great communicator, Lord, and that our lives would forever be changed by the things that you say through Tyler this morning. And for that, Lord, we just say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, if you hand that mic off to uh, Armando, I'm going to have him share. It's, it's always a, a privilege to be here. I know you guys know this, but uh, Karen and Dave, they're incredible leaders, the eldership team. I'm so, it's always good when you, like, if you watch any sports at all, like when you see a team that's, like, growing and there's, like, a building season, you're like, oh, we're about to be really good. All these new deacons and elders that are coming, I'm like, oh, we just stacked our team. This is really exciting. Um, so I love that. But part of in preparation of preaching at a church that's not a church that you're leading is you, in some ways, feel like you're flying blind. You're going, I'm not, you know, when you're, when you're shepherding people and you're doing life with people, you go, oh, I feel like this is a word that's for us and our community based off what's going on. But since I only come in and out periodically here, I'm always asking, you know, Holy Spirit, what is it that you want to share? And, uh, and then I'm also just going, Go before me, Lord. Um, give, you know, whatever words I prepare, Lord, would you, would you make it fit for the season that we're in? And what was great was I invited my friend, um, Pastor Armando, if you come on up. Uh, Armando and I, we met, uh, or Armando, as he likes to be called, we, we met about three years ago at an event, and just natural connection um, came up. And uh, the Lord just has knit our hearts together and our churches together. So um, you can come on this side. I think, I don't know if people can see on the live stream from there. But um, uh, he's been serving uh, as the lead elder for City of Hope Church. It's the church him and his wife have been leading for 10 years, April of this year, right? Um, incredible team there. And just, just through COVID, it, the Lord's made a way that our, um, both of our churches are meeting in the same facility. Uh, and we're just seeing some incredible work happen in our city. I asked Armando though, to come just because I love I loved DCF so much. I was like, you got to come and check out this church with me. Would you come? And uh, he said, absolutely, would love to do that. And then as we were preparing to come, he said, man, I've just been praying for DCF, praying for the community. I felt like the Lord had a word for them um, and just a picture that he showed me. And I wanted him to actually share it today. I asked Dave and Karen if that'd be okay because I feel like it fits with uh, the sermon that I actually had prepared without even knowing. So it felt like the Holy Spirit was speaking to both of us, and it just kind of dovetails. So would you share that picture, and then I'll, I'll dive in. Absolutely. Good morning, church. You guys look great this morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, do I look good? Yeah, yeah, come on, amen, come on. Amen. I always have to ask that because I'm a little insecure. So. Yeah. Um, well, 
two reasons why I'm here. Um, I, I met Dave uh, a little over a year and a half ago, and we just instantly clicked. Uh, and when Tyler said, hey, you know, I'm thinking of going down to Dothan, uh, no, uh, the second reason is I love road trips. So uh, yeah, uh, just so happy to be here this morning. But um, as we were praying uh, for you guys um, uh, during the week, and I just said, Lord, you know, can you show me a picture or give me a statement or scripture to share uh, with DCF? And, and what the Lord showed me was uh, these really thick and strong metal links and what I saw was uh, that the links were coming together. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen videos of how uh, metal links are made. Basically, the machine shapes them and interlocks them. And what I saw was that the Lord was just linking up different leaders. Uh, uh, we got uh, the opportunity to meet with the all-star team last night. and uh, Powerful. Just, just, powerful. just powerful couples. And, and I just truly believe that the Lord is... Uh, uh, strengthening the foundations of, of DCF of what is about to come. Um, I truly believe that there is a harvest coming to this church, and I think God is putting the right people in place. Uh, yesterday, we talked about, you know, the culture and the DNA of the church, and I, I just think God is strengthening the leadership, uh, the volunteers through the grace teams and community groups, and I just think God is about to do something special uh, in this place. So, uh, just wanted to share that with you. Uh, so as I saw these links, I just saw links continuously linking up, linking up. So I believe that the Lord is strengthening the leadership team, and uh, and also you guys have amazing pastors. I mean, Dave and Karen are just amazing, uh, talented, gifted people. Um, so I just wanted to share that with you to encourage you. Um, uh, we have something to look forward to, but also let's focus on what's right in front of us. Because I think, speaking from experience, um, when God gives us promises, I think sometimes we tend to focus so much on the promise that we forget about he who promised. Mm. And let me tell you something. When, when the promise, it, it, you know, the, the promise will come to fulfillment when God says it will. Mm. But I have made the mistake that I have focused so much on the promise that I get disappointed or I get discouraged. But when we focus on he who promised then we will never be disappointed. Will we go through tough times? Absolutely. Um, so I just wanted to encourage you, and I wanted to thank you for this opportunity. I want to thank uh, Dave and Karen. Uh, you guys are in good hands in this place. I love the building. Uh, so I'm just encouraged for what uh, God is doing here, and I plan to be back on a second road trip to see what God is yeah. doing. So God bless you uh, guys this morning. That's good. Good. And then that was great. I was like, I'll preach off of that. And then we got a text this morning from uh, dear friends of mine. I want to give them a shout out if they're going to ever watch on the live stream. But a, a word from Josh and Beth Godwin. Um, and it just felt so fitting with that word. And again, where we're, we feel like we're going this morning. So Karen's going to share that text message. Uh, most of you know Joshua and Beth. For those of you who do not, they serve as deacons in our body. And um, uh, there was a little bit... If you know the story, Beth had a hemorrhaging stroke. Um, November was a year ago. But they are very much in the heart and the fabric of this community of believers. And they love you deeply, and we love them deeply. So this is a great day um, hearing from Joshua. He said this. Um, he said, I saw what I would call a quilt of many colors. This picture relates to the new leadership team as a whole. The quilt contained squares 
each very unique and colorful, with intricate lace bordering each square. The thread that connected each square to one another had a stretchy elastic quality to it, so when the quilt stretched, it would come back into place and not tear apart. That's an encouraging word for our new leaders coming on. Amen. Thanks, Karen. Lord, bless these words. Uh, Clearly, you're speaking and moving among us. Would you watch over us, Lord, as we read the word of God today? Would you enlighten our hearts, enlighten our minds, and continue just to uh, speak from your scripture what it is that you would call us to do to be your church in this city and in this region. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Once again, it is so good to be here with you guys. Uh, It is February 13th. Now, this means, statistically speaking, if you have set any New Year's resolutions... 64% of this room has already given up on those New Year's resolutions. Praise God. I hope this has been an encouraging word to you. I'll be back later. Uh, They say, I I don't know if you're like me, I love to set New Year's resolutions as we prepare for a a new year coming. I take stock in that last week between right after Christmas to the New Year's. How was the year going? What was was happening? Did we accomplish some of the goals, my wife and I, that we had set out in our hearts to do? And then we kind of turn our attention to the new year, 2022, and we go, what do we want to see accomplished this year. And uh, I don't know about you, I get crazy motivated. I am a guy who loves routine. I love lists. I love, so New Year's resolution is like a catnip for me. I am just serious about it. The problem is, is that I'm always a a part of the 64%. Uh, No doubt in my mind, not even like 64%-ish. I'm like, but but then the new year comes around, I go, I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to make it happen. I don't know. Has this ever happened to you? Is this not? So, no, no, never, just me. You know what? Uh, The the Bible says the devil is a liar. And uh, (laughs) tell the truth, same the devil, Dave. Uh, This is for me. So I'm, I'm, I'm now in my 30s, mid 30s. And in your 20s, you can just get away with so much. It's, like, not even fair. It's, like, you can just, like, when I was a poor college student, like, if I was hungry and there was, like, a corn dog sticking out of the trash can, and it, and it wasn't, like, touching anything, you know, it was just, like, you, you know, 20s, you just pop that thing in your mouth, and you're, like, praise God, he delivers, and, uh, but now it's, like, you do that, and your body is, like, no, sir, that is not allowed, that is unacceptable. Now, now it's, like, I have injuries, and my wife's, like, did you, like, were you working out an injury? I was, like, no, I, I slept wrong. Like there's, like, there's no such thing as sleeping wrong when you're, like, 25 and under. It's just, like, you could, like, sleep in a hallway somewhere. And so what I've been doing is I set resolutions around uh, health of some kind because I've got, I've got to pay my own health insurance now, uh, and now I've got a, girl, a little girl to take care of. And so now I'm, like, really, okay, Tyler, like, eat healthier, work out, do the, do the, the right things. Now here's the, tr- the trouble that I have. It's not that my resolutions aren't good. It's that the wife that I made, this woman that you gave me, God, uh, she also has resolutions, and her resolutions are around baking. Uh, she loves to bake. So it was, it's, it's, a, it's a vicious cycle in our house. I, I start off, I'm doing so good, and then November and, and Christmas, the Thanksgiving Christmas comes around, and she's got time off of work. The British Bake Off is on Netflix, and she's like, I'm going to make all the breads. I'm gonna, like, which ones? All of them. And so then what ends up happening is I set out my running shoes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run more. I'm going to eat healthier. And then I'm going for a run, and Nicole's like, hey, eat one of these scones before you leave. And I'm like, well, you got a carbo load, so that's something that athletes do. So I eat a couple scones or whatever, and then I come back from my run, and she's made like four pies. And I'm like, well, you know, athletes, they got to eat meals to recover, so I'm going to eat a pie as well. And so we get to February 13th, and I've gained seven pounds or something. And, it, and I'm going, I don't understand what happened. I had a real desire for change. Is, is this happened? Is this, is this only me? If it's only me, that's fine. But I have found this to be the case. What is this thing? What is that? When we desire change, we desire to make changes in our life. 
but then donuts. You know what I mean? Like, then something happens. Then something happens. I like how Paul says it in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He clearly had, like, bakers in his church or something. I could see him, like, while he's writing this, he's, like, eating an eclair after his run. He's like, for I do not understand my own actions. I say that every day in the mirror before I, like, get dressed. I'm just like, I don't understand why I do the things that I do. That's what he, he says, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For, uh, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, and then he prefaces, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, <laughs> I love this, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. It's the frosting inside the eclairs, I get you. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see it in my members, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin, and sin that dwells in my members. And then he just says, man, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he gives the answer. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with, with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I have found this to be the case. We do not rise to our strongest ambitions. We fall to our deepest cravings. I don't care how strong your willpower is, how strong you're motivated. I have found that you're never going to rise to your strongest desire for change. But at the end of the day, you will fall to your deepest cravings. It is not when you are well motivated that it matters. It matters when you're not motivated and where you go for comfort. I have found it is a very telling thing that when people are hurt, when they are in deep pain, when they are weak, the substance that they go to for their comfort is a very telling thing. Where do you go? when things get really hard? Where do you go, not when things are easy and it's January 1 and you're well motivated, but where do you go when you're at your weakest point? Where do you find comfort? And, and so for me, there's this book uh, written by a guy named James Clear, Atomic Habits. Would totally recommend it, a great read to start off your new year. And he talks all about what does it mean to create lasting change in our life? Not just to, to set resolutions, but what does it mean to take, take a, a thing that we want to do and make it a lasting uh, a thing in our life, a good habit? How do we set good, lasting habits? And how do we break those bad habits that have been with us for a long time? And he talks about the fact that this isn't just about uh, our, our habits or our willpower or our motivation. It's all really about our identity. It circles around our identity. In fact, he says, it's actually a misguided thing to believe that if you want lasting change or to set good habits, it's a misguided thing to believe that it's going to rest on your willpower or your motivation. Some people think those who, who stick to their diets or they work out or they read more books or their finances are in order or they, they have goals for their relationships or for their career, whatever the resolution is, they think, well, that person's able to do it because they're just more dedicated, more motivated, more, they have more willpower than I do. And that's just not true. At the end of the day, we can all do things when it's January 1 and we're crazy motivated, but when it's February 13th, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't um, happen because you've been well motivated that you continue on with your habits. It comes around something far more powerful than your willpower. And James Clear says it this way. He says, it's actually not centered around what you're doing. It's all about your identity. 
So uh, several people have written on this topic, many, many authors, and I like uh, kind of summarizing what they say. They say, if you're going to create lasting change, then the key is to focus on the who before the do. If you want to change in your life, don't talk about the things that you should be doing, but rather talk about the person you want to become. It's, it's fa- your brain is a fascinating thing. The way that God created our brains is absolutely amazing. You can actually trick your brain into doing the things that you want to do. It's not some sort of weird psychosis or meditation. It's that your brain is continually looking for evidence to prove your beliefs. So, so in other words, he says, if you want to set a good habit, but we do this in, in New Year's resolutions. You, you, if you, it can be a, a cute caption on Instagram. That's how you set your goals. It's just like, I'm going to read, I want to read more books. He's like, if you want to read more books, don't set a caption on Instagram that says, I'm going to read 22 books in 2022. That's a, how many people, have, you've, you've read the captions already. The, the idea is not, oh, I'm going to do something, but rather set a goal that's about who you want to become. So instead of saying, in 2022, I'm going to read 22 books, Rather say, in 2022, I'm going to become an avid reader. And here's why. Because your brain now, you've just established an identity, and your brain wants to know, is that true about you? And here's why the brain gets super fascinating here. The reason you want to take an identity statement is because your brain starts asking questions about the identity, not about what you want to accomplish. So in other words, 22 books, you might say, okay, what 22 books do I want to read in 2022? If you're saying, I want to become an avid reader, the first question you ask is, well, what does an avid reader do? And this is where it's super fascinating. You could say an avid reader reads every single day. That's what an avid reader would do, reads everything. Here's the cool part. Your brain doesn't actually care how much you read every day. So in other words, an avid reader would read every day. Is that an hour a day? Is that a few chapters of a book a day? Is it five minutes a day? Is it a page a day? Your brain doesn't ask that question. Your brain is just looking for evidence that proves I'm an avid reader. So what it does is it goes, did I read yesterday, yes or no? And, you, and if the brain goes, yes, you read yesterday, it's evidence that that's who you are. So if all you do is read a page today, and you go to tomorrow, and you read another page, and the next day you read another page, and another page, and the next week you say, I'm an avid reader, people say, oh, what, like, what do you like to do in front of? Ah, I like to read in my spare time. Nobody ever asks how much you read. They just ask what book you're reading. You can totally lie to them. It's awesome. And you can lie to your brain as well. Because your brain is constantly looking for yes or no votes. It's constantly saying, are you a hypocrite or is this true about you? In other words, belief and identity are far more powerful than our motivations and our willpower. Belief, it is reinforcing your identity and your identity is constantly determining your beliefs. I, I am this because these are the things that I do. Your brain's not looking for amounts. It's saying, is this a, am I an avid reader, yes or no? And if you can say yes, your brain goes, that's who you are. Now, here's where it gets even more fascinating. Your brain then becomes, your cravings begin to change. So people who read a, a page a day, they start going, I'm looking for that opportunity, because now you're setting a habit. Like, who skips brushing their teeth in the morning? It feels weird when you do. Who, stops, who, who doesn't drink a cup of coffee in the morning? It feels weird when you stop doing that. Your brain starts going, you didn't read your page today. And you go, oh yeah, I'm an avid reader. It's weird that I didn't read my page today. And so you find more and more time to steal away and read more and more and more and more and more. And so all that to say, you crave what you are. If you want, if you want to see lasting change, you must change your cravings. And the way you change your cravings is you embrace identities. Now, I love this because uh, th- th- we see this in the scripture when we know this to be true. Knowing the right thing to do is not the same as doing the right thing. I know I need to run five miles and stay away from scones. 
but your boy's not going to do that. <laughs> Knowing what to do and doing that are two separate things. And still, and still, it is still a whole nother thing to want to do the right things. Knowing what to do is different from doing the right thing. And it's still different to have a motivation to want to do the right things. I feel the scriptures are like this. I know Dave and Karen, they talk about this all the time, about the difference between law and grace. How many people know Moses, who was the leader who led Israel out of Egypt, he's the one who delivered the Ten Commandments, the laws of God. This evolved into 600 uh, different laws that that God uh, gave to his people. Follow these things. Do the right thing. This is what you ought to be doing. This is what you should not do. If you do the right thing, things will go well with you. If you don't do the right thing, things will go bad with you. All you have to do is do the right thing, but knowing the right thing and the wrong thing and doing those things are two very separate things. The law rests entirely on your motivation and your willpower. And the problem is, is that sinners with willpower is not enough to be holy. How many people know that the law, the law is like a mirror? And how many people know the mirror viciously accurate, huh? The mirror is an unbiased party. It is not trying to puff up your vanity. It is not trying to give you a bad day. It is simply reporting back to you your state of being. It is simply telling you this is what's going on. It can tell you exactly what is right with you and exactly what is wrong with you. If I look into this mirror, I can see, oh, there's spinach in my teeth. There's a smudge on my face. It gives me an accurate picture of who I am. But here's what the law in a mirror is powerless to do. The mirror is powerless to reach out and say, hey, let me wipe that smudge off your face. It gives the exact representation of who you are, but it has no ability to actually change you. And this was the problem with, this is why the law was powerless. The the law was perfect in giving you an exact representation of what is holiness. It just had no ability whatsoever to make you holy, to make you do the right things, or to change your cravings to do the right things. In other words, sinners crave sin. And the only way that a sinner could not crave sin is they have to change their identity, not given a new list of rules. Here's what I've also found, though, that that the mirror is also a mirror of grace. When it comes to a mirror, when you are in Christ, it it says that you are a new creation. The old you has passed away and the new has come. Grace, like a mirror, is a constant reminder. Your brain's looking for evidence, and what happens is when you are in Christ, you are given a new mind. You are given the mind of Christ, is what Scripture says. So the evidence that your brain goes to is not about what you did this week. It's about what Christ accomplished on the cross for our behalf. The evidence that your your mind finds is all about what Christ did and who he is and who he's made us to be. Those who are in Christ, it's a reminding. Galatians 6, it says, those who are in step with the Spirit of God, they will not give into the cravings of the flesh. And what I have found, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. First Corinthians, I want to do just a quick overview of the letter of First Corinthians. If I could summarize what First Corinthians is, it is a mess and a half. Just an ass. If you thought you were crazy or you had a crazy uncle, these people were nuts. And all Paul's doing as he's addressing the letter to the Corinthians is he is holding up a mirror of grace, and they are in constant sin. They are doing horrific things, and they're doing it in the name of Jesus inside the church. And all Paul does, he doesn't, he doesn't lop their heads off. He, do, he doesn't ignore their sin. He doesn't, he doesn't say, he doesn't pretend that it's not happening. He rebukes it. He calls it out. But the entire time throughout his letter, he is holding up a mirror and saying, the reason this is not fitting is this is the kind of way a sinner would act, and these are the things that a sinner would crave Thank God that you are no longer sinners, but you are saints, and therefore you have a new heart, a new mind, and a new stomach, and you crave new things. And so he is constantly, throughout his letter, 
reminding people about who they are and their identity. It's a strategy letter about bringing lasting change to a people that God established to be the church inside a city of Corinth. And Paul's strategy as he needed to correct them from their bad sin and their bad habits and bring them to having the right actions. He doesn't go after their willpower like Moses did with the law, but rather he holds up a mirror of grace and says, don't you know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit of God? And so here's, here's a quick overview of uh, 1 Corinthians, if, if you're with me. We'll, we'll just start in the beginning of the letter. Uh, I just want to give a quick overview. Uh, Paul, in chapter, uh, Acts chapter 18, Paul comes to the city of Corinth, and he hangs out there for about a year and a half, and he establishes a community. He meets Priscilla and Aquila. This is a husband and wife team, and they are tent makers, which also happens to be the trade that Paul was a part of. And so Paul's rhythm of life was he would have a Monday to Friday kind of work uh, job. He'd be mending tents, fixing tents, and then on the Sabbath, over the weekend, he would go to the synagogue and he would preach the gospel. The more he preached week after week, more and more people would gather, and these became Paul's close friend. This became, this became his network, his community, the people that he loved dearly, and you can hear his love and affection as he writes this letter of 1 Corinthians. And so as he's establishing a community, people begin to respond to the gospel message, and they, become, they, they begin to give their life to Jesus, and this community, this network, becomes the church. It becomes not just an ordinary community, but it becomes a community of believers. Now, after a year and a half, Paul is called away to continue this pattern on and to plant more churches in other cities, and he has to have a gospel goodbye, tell, tell these people that he loves dearly that he has to leave. And in his time of ministering away, uh, it says that Chloe and Chloe's people, friends of Paul's, write to him and say, hey, this place is a mess. You've got, you've got to do something, Paul. There's factions breaking apart. There's divisions breaking apart. And so the whole letter of 1 Corinthians is literally just Paul addressing the problems that have been reported back to him. He said, hey, I heard that this is happening. I got to tell you, this is wrong. This is not okay. You have to change this. And so the letter is broken up into five essays, like we see here. Uh, I believe that they're not just five separate essays dealing with five different issues, but rather I believe that they actually build off of one another, and we'll talk a little bit about that today. But chapters one to four is all about division. There's factioning breaking off in the church and not good division. We'll talk about what does good division look like. But there's division that's happening. People are having lawsuits over frivolous things, human things, as Paul says, and it's getting ready to threaten and frac uh, just uh, faction off the church. They're about to break up. We call them denominations these days. Just kidding, that's bad. Uh, <laughs> it's getting ready to explode and break apart, and so Paul has to write about how we handle disagreement because there's massive disagreement, and it's threatening the division of the local church. Then he writes all about sexuality. There's sexual immorality happening all over the city of Corinth. That's a known thing in the city of Corinth, but now it's seeping into the church because this is not fitting. This is not okay. Let me tell you what sexual purity looks like. Let me tell you what the only expression of sexuality looks like uh, by God's design, and so he addresses a number of different things around sexuality. And that's chapters five to seven, so that's essay number two. Essay number th uh, th three, chapters eight to 10, all around food being sacrificed to idols. I think it it's, it's actually a lot about liberty, about what kind of freedoms do we have as we're a community of brothers and sisters. Uh, it's, it's striking to me that in the U.S. we're about autonomy. That's the kind of freedom that we have. And Paul writes in this part of the letter, he goes, you're mistaken. The freedom that I'm talking about, the freedom that Jesus is talking about, is not that you get to do whatever you want. You're bought with a price. You're not your own. So he's not talking about a freedom of autonomy to do whatever you want. He's talking about a freedom from slavery. You were set free from something, not set free to do something. And so Paul goes, you're, you're a bondservant to Jesus, and you, you should be looking out not for your own advantages, but you should be looking for the advantages of your brother. That's the kind of freedom that Jesus promises, not a freedom of autonomy. Hard for Americans like myself to hear, but Paul said it, Jesus said it. So 
Essay number four, gatherings. He talks about the gatherings. Chapter 11 to 14 is all about, man, your gatherings are doing more harm than good. I just got to say, if division, sexual immorality, and people are just taking liberties all day long and cutting out their neighbor, if that's happening, I can guarantee you when we come together, it's not going to be a fun time. It's one of the things, and so he's going, these gatherings, in light of what I've already talked about to you, are doing way more harm than good. The gifts are out of control and out of whack, not because you shouldn't be using the gifts, but because if you are compartmentalizing your life, living however you want to Monday to Friday, and then you come to the church and go, and now we can be Christians. He goes, that is not how we're designed to be. And so he writes this essay, chapters 11 to 14. Finally, he talks about chapter 15, and it's people who are actually denying the resurrection. And now you, you might say, Tyler, well, these are crazy Corinthians. We're not like that. I know I am. I can find myself in the chapter. <laughs> and I'm not Paul. <laughs> and so what ends up happening is people deny the resurrection. What I have found is if you compartmentalize your life, and if you say, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus up into a certain point. I'm going to give 98% of my life to Jesus. But when it comes to my lawsuits with my neighbor, when it comes to my sexual immorality, when it comes to uh, the liberties that I feel like I'm owed something and how I operate, if you compartmentalize your life and say, I'm going to give 98% of my life to Jesus, but I'm definitely going to keep my little thing over here, that will eventually corrode your faith. Paul and Peter, the, the apostle who actually walked physically with Jesus, they preached into this church. They actually, Peter was a witness to this resurrection. He was the one preaching, and these people still denied. He said, I don't know if that's true, Paul. I don't know if that's true, Peter. If Peter and Paul can't convince the resurrection was a happening thing, I prom- and it's because this kind of living, I promise you it's, it's, it would be easy for us to deny it as well. And so if we compartmentalize our life, if we live in a certain way and we think, oh, it's fine, as long as I come to church and I gotta pay my dues to Jesus, I promise you, your faith will eventually corrode all the way to the point of a foundational belief of Jesus is a resurrection Lord and Savior. That's what happened there. And then chapter 16 is a farewell portion, just wrapping up the letter. That is Corinthians. You now, that's the letter of 1 Corinthians. I say all that because what I wanna do is I, a couple things. I want to pull out, I, first, as I talk about what, what, we, what I feel like we need to cover today, I want to just hear Paul's heart. He is dealing with a mess and a half uh, when it comes to this church. But I want us to hear uh, Paul's heart and posture as he writes about these things. Before he writes anything, he pours out his heart and his affection of how much he loves this church, how much he loves these people. I love what he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, verse 4. Before he writes about anything that I just shared, He says this, I just need you to know, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. I just want you to know, church, warts and all, I thank God for you. You are not a burden to me. I don't care that this thing is a mess. I want you to know I love you deeply, and I'm not going anywhere. We need pastors like that. We need pastors to go, hey, I need you to know, I've got to say some hard things, but I want you to know every single day that I wake up and I think about the the church in Corinth, I thank God for you. DCF, I thank God for you. I thank God that I get to minister at Northlands in Norcross. It is an absolute privilege, not because we are perfect, because this is what Jesus is building, and we have the privilege to be a part of it. I love what he he also says. he says this, this is so, so big for me. He's in chapter four, uh, 4, verse 15, he says, you have many guides in the faith, good guides, but you don't have many spiritual fathers. And he said, I became a father to you. And this wasn't Paul irritated, like I'm gonna talk to you like a bunch of children. He's saying, I am imploring you as if you're my son. I'm imploring you as if you're my daughter. I need to talk about some really harsh truths and some really harsh realities. I have to call sin, sin, but I want you to know, I am begging you, I'm imploring you as if it's my own kid sitting in front of me because you've become children to me. How many parents here? How many parents? David and Callie will figure it out in just like two seconds. 
super judgmental when like another kid's running around and having a tantrum. You're just like, those parents just don't know how to parent their kid. How many parents know when it's your kid though? When it's your kid, the level of grace just goes through the roof. Why? Because it's just, oh, they're just a little hangry. She just needs a nap. When it's somebody else's kid, it's like, let me tell you what you need. You need to fix yourself. But when it's your kid, every word you say matters. Because you're not just trying to fix a behavior. You're trying to save a soul and a destiny and disciple them. And so Paul's going, you became like children to me. I am imploring you. Things have to change. But I, got, I need you to know, I love you with a devotion as if you're my own kid. And so I am sitting here, even as Paul's reading these things to him, I'm sitting here as if I've got my daughter's Evangeline. I'm sitting here like the entire room is filled with Evangelines. And if Evangeline was doing this, I would be begging her, baby, come back to Jesus. Let me tell you of a better way to live your life. And this is what Paul is doing. I lo- again, I just want to share some more of his heart. He says in, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians, I, I probably need to read it just because it's such a good word. One, he says in verse, he, and says in verse 8 of chapter 1, he goes, hey, they're all in massive sin. And he says, I just want you to know because you're in Christ, you are guiltless. No, they're not, Paul. No, they're not. He's, and he doesn't, he doesn't ignore it. He doesn't pretend like there's not sin happening. He calls out all of the sin, doesn't ignore it at all, but he just says, it is not about your behavior. Let me show you the mirror of grace once again. Look in that mirror. Do you not see Jesus? It's not about what you've accomplished. It's what he accomplished on your behalf. You are guiltless. And I love what he says in chapter 6 of this letter, uh, verse 9. I, this is the thing I just nail on my heart because I have to read it to myself again and again and again. Not ignoring the sin, he says in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Essentially, he says, don't you know sinners crave sin? He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, uh, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is powerful. Verse 11. And such were, past tense, some of you. He is writing a letter to talk about their current behavior. They were doing all of these things. And he says, don't you know, sinners would never inherit the kingdom of God. But he says Praise God, though. That's who you used to be. And then he says this, but because of the mirror of grace, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified by the Spirit of God through the cross of Christ. This is who you are. So his entire letter, he is constantly, he's going after, he wants lasting change. And the way he goes after lasting change in these people that he loves, he says, I'm going to talk to you about your identity for the next 15 chapters. As I write these five separate essays, I'm going to keep reminding you, I'm going to tell you what you're doing is wrong and you need to change. But the way in which you change is I'm going to remind you of who you are. Because if you have a new nature, you have new cravings. Sinners crave this kind of living. Thank God you are saints. And so... I want to talk about this, what we're doing here. I love the fact that Paul is writing to a church in, in Corinth, and he's writing to us today. And that his, he is saying, we have an opportunity to not just be a community, but a community of believers, the ecclesia, the church. And so I want, to, I want to, just like we talked about, okay, if we're going to see changes in our midst, if we're going to see the power of God move in our lives, we have to ask a question very similar, like what would an avid reader do? So I don't want to give you a list of to-dos, but rather I want to give you a to-who list. And I want to I ask the question, what would a great member of the body do? That's the question I want to answer. Because you know, and I know, you, you are not an average member of the body. Paul says in this letter, chapter 12, he says, if there's anybody that seems, not that is, that seems to you as small or weaker or dispensable, 
they are indispensable. You need every member of the body. And you need those who seem or you think are weaker, you need to give them double honor. Which means there is no average members in the body of Christ. You and I, we were made for great things because we were fashioned and made in the mind of God. We serve a giant of a God, and he dreams great dreams for you. And so I want to ask that question. And here's, here's three things that I believe a great member of the body would do, and I want to just go through them, and I want to end each one of them with an identity statement. Uh, number one, great members of the body, we are called to be unshakable in unity. Number two, we are called to be generous with our gifts, all gifts, not just the talents that we bring, drummers that drum, amen, praise God. Uh, we need more drummers from what I hear. Not just the gifts, but the resources we have, the hours and the time that we can spend, the, the, the finances that we bring to the table, all of these things, be generous with the gifts, and we are called to be lavish with our love, overflowing in our love, that love is not something that we do. Love is who we are, and it is the mode of operation and how we do all things. This is what a great member of the body would do. So let's just take that first one, unshakable in unity. This one for me, if there was a time to preach about unshakable unity, I don't, did you guys have a 2020 uh, down here? We had one in, in Georgia. It was crazy. Challenging, to say the least. Everybody had incredible disagreements. And Paul writes about it, chapter 4, 1 to 4, he writes about divisions because they were facing massive disagreements, just like we have all faced over the last couple years. I find it fascinating, though, what Paul does to address these disagreements and how he brings resolution and unity to the body. Watch what he does. If we go to chapter 1 uh, of this, and he, and he read it, uh, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verse 10, it says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there is no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, if you read that one verse and you don't look at the whole rest of the letter, you just read that one verse, you think that Paul is saying you must be in complete and total agreement and you must be in the same mind and the same judgment. We have to agree about everything or we're not unified. That is not what Paul is saying. And the reason that's not what Paul is saying, if you read just the rest of those four chapters in that part of the essay around division, he actually encourages the disagreement. The, the, here was the big disagreement that, that Paul's addressing. There was uh, factions that were happening in the church. And I, I, for me, I, I look at it, I think it's because it was a Jewish context. They're used to having rabbis. And so they're saying, well, we, be, we want our rabbi to be Paul. So we're going to ignore all the other teachers, and we're going to be a Paul follower. We're, he's our rabbi. But some are like, we'd rather, we'd rather follow Peter, the guy who actually walked with Jesus. Peter's going to be our rabbi. Then there was this great charismatic leader who was a great communicator and preacher, and people loved hearing him preach Apollos. And they said, well, we're actually going to follow Apollos because when Paul left, Apollos kind of helped manage the, the community and be the leader for us. And so factions started breaking off and going, if you follow Paul, you can't come to our gathering. If you follow Apollos, you can't come. And so there's these factions breaking off, and Paul is looking at it, and he goes, what a human way to operate, that you would divide because you can't agree upon the leaders that you're supposed to have in place. Hello. That sounds familiar. 2020, ooh, I get chills still thinking about it. Paul, Paul, says, Paul says, don't you know, I planted this church, but Apollos, he did the faithful work of watering. But at the end of the day, we're just servants. We're nothing. God is the one who brings forth the fruit in this community. So who are we? Don't, and he says in chapter three of this essay, he goes, how human that you would divide over such a matter. Paul, if there was a guy who could say, let me tell you how this disagreement's gonna go. Let me tell you the preferences that you should have. I am the founding pastor of this church. I'm the pastor you follow. He planted the church. He doesn't do that. He encourages, he goes, oh, I don't care if you prefer uh, Apollos over me. Not a problem at all. Paul, in other words, is not correcting their disagreement. He's correcting their division. 
Paul, in other words, is saying disagreements are not evidence that you have failed unity. This person rubbed me the wrong way. We had a fight. We had an argument. Disagreements is not the evidence that you have failed unity. Division is the evidence that we have failed unity. And Paul says we don't divide over such silly and trivial matters. And so it, it begs the question, okay, what things do we divide over? Because Paul goes very plainly on there's some things that we do divide over. And as I read through the letter, I think that you could easily pull more. I wouldn't fight you on this. You could probably pull more reasons that we might divide. Two main overarching themes that I see in 1 Corinthians is this. Number one, here's what we divide over. Number one, if you remove Christ from the central place in the church and in his kingdom. You deny the Trinity, you deny his resurrection, you deny his crucifixion, you deny that he is both Savior and Lord, that you should obey every single one of them. You deny Jesus, and you are no longer a part of this body. It's not that we divide with our members, it's that that person was never a member to begin with. We divide over such a thing. Number two, and this is where things get touchy, so just like if you got a seatbelt, just buckle that bad boy in. Number two is eternal matters. Eternal matters. What I mean by this, this is a great question to ask when you're fighting amongst yourselves. And trust me, we do it in Northlands all the time, it's great. When you're fighting amongst yourself, ask the question, are we going to be talking about this in heaven? Is this something that we're going to be talking about in eternity? So I'm going to be, I'm going to be this is not me being provocative or trying to, to point out a wound. It's just, I think what can happen is you read this and you go, well, these people are crazy, so that's not me. So what Paul says to them doesn't apply to my life. There's plenty of things that if we look back over the last couple years, they divided us, not necessarily this group here, but they divided our country, and they were not eternal matters. So eternal matters. Uh, uh, it says that every tribe, tongue, and nation will one day worship at the throne of Jesus and, and, and declare him as Lord and Savior, which means diversity by its very nature. Ethnicities will gather together, which means racism has no place in the body of Christ. Why? Because this is an eternal matter, not a political issue. This has been in our, in our culture for years, since the very beginning of this country and countries before us. Racism is not some new thing, but it is not a political issue. It is a spiritual matter. And there is, no, there is no room for racism in the body of Christ. If you are going to, if you're going to have racism in your heart, you have no place in the body because that is a sign that you are not a Jesus follower. There's no case for it. Things like, this is even touchier, things like abortion. The Bible says that you were knit together in your mother's womb. And so when it comes to life, from, from, from the, from the uh, womb to the tomb, all life matters. All life is, is, is beautiful and precious. Why? Because you and I, we were made in the image of God. You, you were conceived in the mind of God before you ever came into human form, no matter how small. And this is an eternal matter. Why? Because you were made in the Imago Dei. So if we're talking about it in heaven, it matters today. Thing, things like sexuality. Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, uh, a man will leave his father and his and mother and, his, and the two will become one flesh. So in other words, Paul says, and Jesus uh, continually says this, that this process, this thing called marriage, that is what pure sexuality looks like between a man and a woman. Not just a man and a woman, but a man and a woman who's committed to covenant relationship for the rest of their lives here on earth. And this is what's fascinating. You will, we're not going to be married in heaven. So true. But then he says this, he goes, as he's talking about a man and wife, he goes, but I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about Jesus and the church. In other words, Paul goes, marriage is a picture of Jesus and his bride. And if you have a messed up picture of that here, you're going to have a skewed picture of what it looks like out here. What we do on that matter of sexuality, it matters because it gives us a picture of who Jesus and his bride is. If you mess this picture up, this picture will be skewed. So these are matters that we would divide over, but here's where things get, just buckle up, it's fine, we're going to be okay. Things like masks, vax, COVID, these will not be things that we're talking about 
a thousand years from now. We're not going to be talking about them, I, I'd argue, 50 years from now, maybe in history books. In other words, it doesn't matter. It's not that it doesn't matter. It does matter. These subjects do matter. And we have every right to disagree about how we should walk forward in them. But these should not be things that divide us. Because just because we disagree about those kinds of matters, it is not evidence that we have failed in our unity. It is simply that we are called to be diverse. Chapter 12 of this letter, Paul says, he talks about the diverse members of the body. He says, we're not all eyes. We're not all ears. We're not all feet. In other words, diversity was a design by God. Diversity, many living stones, which Jesus is the cornerstone and capstone, which means by definition, God said, oh, my church, it will be diverse. And I don't know if you know this or not, but have you noticed that diversity, by its very nature, provokes conflict and disagreement? I'll, let's, I'll, I'll, terms that we can understand. Have you been to a Thanksgiving meal? I don't know what your role is in Thanksgiving. There was always like the crazy uncle. And praise God, as I've gotten older, I'm now the crazy uncle. And I just throw some grenades periodically. Like, just like, it was God's grace that he gave me COVID during Thanksgiving, so I missed it. So like, because like, I'm just, I'm that guy who's like, hey, so, throw the grenade in. Who did we vote for? And you just throw it in. <laughs> just like, I'm like, I'll just feel like, I have no, I like, have no dog in the fight. I'm just like, hey, so, which one's got the vax? And you just throw it in, You're like, you ever, nobody has ever done that. Okay, it's just me. That's cool. I don't get invited to a lot of dinners. What is a Thanksgiving meal except many families coming from different parts of the states coming together? We have different views, different experiences, and we come together. We are many members of the same family, and we disagree like crazy. Why? Because we are diverse. Diversity is not evidence that your unity is weak. Diversity is evidence that you are strong. Uh, one of the most powerful moments in my uh, marriage uh, was, was uh, I, I, let me say it this way. Uh, agreement might be some of the high points of unity. When you're walking with your spouse on the beach, you're, agreeing, you're finishing each other's sentences and everything's great. That, those are the high points of unity. But unity is not uniformity. The most powerful aspects of unity are not when everything is going right and you're in complete agreement. The most powerful expressions of unity is when you're in disagreement and you stay anyway. And I remember my wife and I, we got in this kind of uh, major fight we're fighting back and forth, and she's a, she's a processor by nature, so the best thing that she can do is if she sees an argument coming, if she can back away for a few minutes, uh, if you're a spouse and that's, this is who you are, you kind of back away, you get time to kind of breathe, think about the situation, think about what you've said, think about what's been said to you, and you can kind of come back with resolution and solution. I'm a kind of go-with-your-gut guy, and we're just going to fight it out until one's standing. It's just kind of how I, how I go out. It's super uh, helpful uh, to be that guy. We, we don't fight often because it's so much fun. We just want to save it for the good times. Um, and so we're fighting back and forth, and Nicole keeps going, hey, I just need a break for a second. I just need a break. And I'm, just, I'm, I'm like Jesus juking her. I'm like, we're not going to let the sun go down in our anger. We're going to keep fighting until we fix it and, and all this kind of stuff. And, I, and then I realized it was my own insecurity because we, we fix the problem. We come back, and we start kind of debriefing about the argument. She goes, she goes, babe, man, one of the things that I just I need is I just need to be able to take a step back and breathe and think about and process. And she goes, but you keep keeping us at the table and want to, you want to fight for four hours until we resolve it. She goes, it's not helpful for me. I say things that I regret. I need time to process. And she goes, why won't you just let us leave the table? And I said this, and it was, it was just telling of, of the things that I need to fix and heal on myself. I said, babe, because I'm concerned that if we make it a habit that when we argue, we walk away from the table, I'm scared that one day you're going to leave and not come back. Because for me, it was evidence of saying, if we keep disagreeing and not resolving, disagreement will eventually be the thing that breaks our unity apart. 
And she, and she looks at me in the eye, the most powerful moment of my marriage, 11 years in. She looks me in the eye and she goes, Tyler, even in the most heated of our arguments, never once have I looked at the door and just said, Nicole, you walk out the door and you don't come back. I've considered murder a couple times, but never leaving. <laughs> and so she looks me in the eye, most powerful moment, and she goes, I need you to know, no matter what, I'm not leaving. Paul talks about love in chapter 13 of this letter. And we read it at weddings to brides and grooms and say, hey, this is what love is. Do you realize that Paul's writing to the church? In its context, when Paul talks about what love is, is patience and kindness and all that, he's not writing to a bride and groom, he's writing to us. How powerful is it? How powerful is it that when we disagree and we fight, we are not like the world that would divide, but we look each other in the eyes and go, I know it's hard. I completely disagree with you. Everything that you believe about this subject, I think you're completely and totally dead wrong, but I need you to know, I'm not leaving. That's, that's unshakable unity. And that's what the church was designed to be. I, um, I'm, running, I'm running low on time, but I, as I said, you, you know, your brain looks for evidence. I just want to say, well done, DCF. Because you are unifiers. You say, Tyler, how do you know that? Your brain's looking for evidence. Am I a unifier right now? Because in 2020, 2021, and even 2022, it would be so much easier for all of us to go. And you and I are crazy enough to say we're going to stay. I want you to create evidence for yourself this year as you work together and you live together to see the gospel push forward in this city. And I want you to continually give yourself evidence in your brain. Continually tell yourself, I'm a unifier, I'm a unifier. And when your brain goes to look for evidence, is that true about you? Are you really a unifier? I want you to give evidence and say, you know what? It absolutely is true because I stayed when it would have been easier for me to go. That's what we do. I'm going to move through these last two very quickly. I, I felt like that was an important one to stay on. Generous in our gifts. Uh, we say it this way at Northlands. We are not after an amount from you. We are after your heart. We want to see generous hearts. We're not after some sort of uh, percentage of giving. People say, hey, do you believe in tithing and all that? I go, no, we are children of God, which means we are about the Father's business. Tithing is for people who are outside the business. You're gonna give far more if you're a part of the business. And so we are not after an amount that you are giving of your gifts, your resources, your finance, but rather we are after your heart. We are after, you are made in the image of God. In James chapter one, verse five, it says that God, he gives generously to all without finding fault. Give like that. That's how we're called to give. If I could take a, an identity statement for when it comes to our generous giving, we are spiritual contributors. That's who we are. That's who you are. There's so much evidence. The church is still here. This COVID, the pandemic, it should have closed down every single church because it was a whopper. Businesses are closing down left and right, but we are not a business. We are a church. We are an ecclesia, and we fought and we stayed, and part of it is because you gave generously. That is who you are. If there's one thing that I want to kill in the Western culture of the church is this thing of spiritual consumerism. We believe that church is gathering at a meeting, coming and observing, watching things and going, oh, I like it better when Dave preaches and not Tyler. Oh, I wish the worship was a little bit better. And we start, we start making observations and we're consuming stuff, but we are called to be the church who contributes. We are not spiritual consumers. We are spiritual contributors. If I can say it this way, the church does not exist for me. We, we are the church and we exist for the world. We are going to continually give and pour our life, lives out because we believe the crazy thing that this life is not everything, that there's an eternity on the other side of this thing, and I will pour out my life. I will wring my life out like a drink offering. Why? Because I am not investing in this life. I'm investing in the life to come, and eternity is on the line. What we do here is not just for a few special people, a few elders, a few deacons. The church is what pushes back darkness in our city. The church is what declares the gospel in our city. We will see the kingdom of God reign in Dothan, because we pour out our lives with generosity.
We need evidence. If you could close your eyes for two seconds, small exercise. Consider what is in your life and in your hands. Consider your bank account. Consider the gifts that you bring. Consider the relationships and networks that you have. Consider the career and the skill sets that you've accumulated over the years. And simply ask the question, somebody with my gifts who's generous, what would they do with what I have? And do that. You say, Tyler, do you want us to join? You can open your eyes. Tyler, do you want us to join a grace team? Sure. You want us to join a community group? Sure. You want us to give to DCF? Sure. I'm not asking you for any of those things. I'm asking you, if you had these gifts and this call and you were a generous person, what would you do with them? And do that. I'm not after an amount. I'm not after how many teams you're supposed to sign up for. I'm just asking, you have skill sets. You are amazing. You are not an average member of the body of Christ. You are a great member of the body. What would a great member of the body do if they had what you had? And do that. Number three, my last one, we'll close it out. We're to be lavished in love. God is not doing love. God is love. And you and I were made in the image of God. And those who are in Christ, you've been given the mind of God and the heart of God. You have the capacity to love above and beyond any other Uh, capacity in the world. This is not some common kind of love. This is a supernatural, spirit-empowered, divine kind of love, and it should be overflowing in our life. Love is not something we do. It is who we are. Love is our primary mode of operation. It's not just that we do good things. It's the way in which we do them are for our neighbor. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the same letter, Paul says, do not look for your own advantage or for your own good, but look for the good of your neighbors. If you have a gift, it was given to you by God for one specific reason, to give it away in love and service. That's the only reason why he gave you a gift. If you look at all the, the, the points of this letter where Paul talks about the gifts and who you're called to be, every time he connects it to, now give it away, now give it away, now give it away. The question that we want to ask, so, so here's the identity statements, the to-who list. You are called to be a unifier. You need evidence. Stay when it would be easier to go. You are called to be a spiritual contributor. What would a generous person do? And number three, you're called to be a servant. As we lavish and love, give your, Jesus said, you want to be great in my kingdom, then take the lowest position, be a servant. Ask this question continually. What does love require of me today? What would love require? We are no ordinary gathering. We are not about some sort of corporation or some club. We are the ecclesia. We are special because we were formed by God himself. We were designed for good works and for love. We are called to be the church. And I'm telling you, we are, the best is yet to come. Amen. Amen.